You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, this morning, we're actually going to be in a standalone series um, in Genesis chapter 4. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not, there should be one underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you as a gift from us today. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you, do not, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are crusted you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer of the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Court, and I am one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, hopefully, if it is your first time, you've already had a chance to chat with someone a little bit about who we are, uh, learning um, what we're trying to do here, uh, and making the gospel unignorable in our city. Uh, this morning, we're taking a break from our, our sermon series in January, uh, in, in between the sermon series that we're going to go into, hopefully kicking off uh, next week. And we're going to talk a little bit about a story in the Bible that is probably familiar to you, but I think could really be helpful and beneficial to us, which is the story of Cain and Abel. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how the Bible deals with sin right off the bat. Lots of fun, right? I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. You're getting ready to eat, enjoy time with your family. And I'm here to talk to you a little bit about sin, just, right, just to prep you for that and really send you out with joy. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I really am hoping, and, and I really hope for us that this morning will will help us and it will re be very helpful for us. It's something serious, of course, uh, and significant, and so there's a, a, serious, a serious tone to it, but I hope that it's really helpful in that it helps us to wire our lives uh, in such a way that they can guard us 
uh, from sin because sin ultimately is aimed at destroying us, at, at harming us, at harming our families, those we love dearly, uh, the people we love the most, the things that we love the most, the things that we're after in life. Sin has a way at aiming uh, to disrupt and destroy that. And so what I'm hoping is that this morning, uh, in all seriousness, is very helpful. So what I'd love to do is just pray for us, ask the Spirit to, to guide us and lead us as we read the Word. Uh, if you bow your heads with me, uh, I'll pray. Father, we are just humbled by the fact that your word speaks to such obvious but also deep issues as sin. It seems obvious to, to me, Lord, and I'm sure to, to most of us that there's something that has gone wrong in the world, but your Bible and your, and your word speaks so clearly to it, and we thank you for that. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, but you've given us a great amount of revelation that we might not only know ourselves, but most importantly, know you, your character and your nature. And, and I thank you, my God, that we get to submit humbly under your word this morning. And so what we ask collectively is that you would meet the ever-present needs of our soul, which we all have, and give what is necessary to us, whether that be real conviction or real encouragement this morning or clarity, discernment, whatever it may be, God, that we all need. You know us each both individually and collectively. And I ask, my God, would you meet us here and provide what it is that we might need? But, but ultimately, God, it is our prayer that it would lead always to the same place and that place would be worship, gratitude, gratefulness in our hearts for who you are and for what you've done. Turn our eyes upwardly this morning, my God, that we might worship the one and true God and may today be full of peace and joy because of it. That if there are burdens this morning, we would lay them down at your feet and we'd leave out of here feeling much lighter. We ask all of these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay. I just want to start just kind of walking through the text here. So let read with me the first seven verses just to kind of catch you up. This is the very first relational story in your Bible outside of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's really interesting. And the reason that I say it's interesting is because you have the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter three, where sin enters the world for the first time and corrupts and creates not only distance, but exile between God's creation human beings, male and female, and the creator God, there's an exile that happens. And also we know that the curse of sin creates this relational discord. So like the curse was not only vertical, but it was horizontal. And there was going to be, there was going to be this relational uh, consequence to sin. And so the fact that this is the first story that we run into in the Bible means that it's going to be the first time we see exactly what the effect of that curse is. And in some ways, if this were a movie, it doesn't disappoint. It's pretty grave. It's pretty significant. It's pretty serious. And right off the bat, if you think of it if, in terms of a storyteller or an author wants to get across certain things at the beginning of, of a book that he thinks are going to be important for the rest of the book, God laying out the severity of sin starts right at chapter four, the very first human relationship outside of Adam and Eve. So that's kind of where we're at. We just got done with chapter three, which was full of the, the curses of sin, and now we're picking up in chapter number four. So here's what the Bible records. 
Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. We have kids here, so we're all in the same bit with this on what this means. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, let's just pause. So it's leaving open the idea that there were already daughters that perhaps may have been born. This idea that she's celebrating that she had a boy is the idea of celebrating that the line would go on, right? That's kind of this idea. And I think this is important because in a, in a moment, after all of this kind of shakes down with Cain, Cain's going to have this massive complaint against God saying, if you send me out into the world as a wanderer, I could be, I could be killed by people if they knew what I did. And, um, my biggest question to that has always been, I thought there's only like four people on the earth, you know, it's like, who's going to kill you? You know, it's like, it's who's out there, you know, is, it, is this like on lost where there's the others that we just don't know about and they find them. And, and of course here we see that perhaps there are more people already that are populating the earth and this is just to focus on this family. Okay. But that's a whole other question for a whole other day. I just wanted to point that out. thought that might be important for, for later. Verse number two, and again, she bore his brother Abel. So now you have two brothers. And this, this uh, typology, this, this storyline of two brothers is going to continue throughout your entire Bible. It's really heavy in the Old Testament. You're going to have uh, brothers interacting with one another, and they represent whole lines. They represent whole nations, but they also represent humankind, brother-to-brother relations. It's really interesting, really intriguing, whether you go to Jacob and Esau, or you go to Ham and Shem and Japheth, or, you know, you can go on and on, David and his brothers. There's always this brotherly relationship and the discord that happens there that speaks to the effects of sin. And so that's where we are here. So you got Abel and you have Cain. It says this, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. There's a lot there, but I, I don't have time to focus on it. We'll continue. In the course of time, Cain brought forth to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This is key. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So there's a lot of commentaries on this, on why is it that God accepts Cain's off, or Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. There's a lot that has been said. One of the most convincing things that I have always seen, and also seen it very plainly in the text, is that Cain is, brings an offering, which seems very general from the ground, from the fruit of his hands. And then the Bible records that Abel brings, now this is key, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. There's an idea, there's an idea of first fruits, like everything at the beginning for Abel was God's. He's acknowledging God's authority over everything that he has given his hands and that he gives him the good, not the lame offering. You'll see this throughout all of the Old Testament where uh, some of the Israelites will start to treat the sacrifices and the offerings of worship to God as though it were just something they had to do, just kind of a ritual. And so they would do things like they'd look out at their flock and because they knew they had to sacrifice a lamb, they would find the lamb that was most lame or the runt of the litter or what would be least costly to them, right? They knew they couldn't get on the open market as much for this animal and they would bring that animal to be sacrificed before the Lord. And God would always say this was an abomination to him because it was actually under cutting the very root of what worship is, that God's worthy of everything. And therefore we bring, the fact that he would, for instance, in the old Testament require a tithe is small in comparison with his great worth, right? That's the idea of worship. Now, I think what's happening here is there's a, there is a hard issue at bare minimum. We can agree something's up in the heart of Cain versus the heart of Abel, that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and worship does not accept Cain's. Now, the key here, and especially for the point of the sermon, is 
what's happening in the heart of Cain that he first he sees what happens between his brother and him in the relationship with God and he's very angry his face falls it says and God recognizes this if you're a parent you've already probably experienced this with your own children it's when you 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 will quickly realize especially when your kids are young when they're disappointed about something and you can see this or when there's an equitable action that's taken for instance uh you know for my for my children it's uh if if both of them were given the same rewards for an action and only one did something worthy of reward and the other didn't get it you can really quickly tell that they're upset about this they're angry their face has fallen god interacts with cain and abel as children and he recognizes that that cain's angry but i want to key in on what god says to cain here particularly in verse six he says this why are you angry and why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted? Now that's kind of a slap in the face, right? If you do the right thing, like, wouldn't this have been just fine? It's tough to hear, but true. And then here's the big one though. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay, this idea that sin's desire is for Cain. Don't think that sin loves Cain. Or sin, you know, longs to be near to Cain or something of that nature. This word desire is a, a desire to consume him. Sin, the first thing God tells us about sin, and it's true for Cain as well as it is true for us. Because one of the first things you need to know is that we are sinners both by nature and choice. We're sinners by nature because we're, our first parents were sinners and therefore every child that's been born of the seed of man is sinful. It's one of the reasons the virgin birth is so important, by the way, that Christ is born of a virgin as he's not of the seed of man, but we can do that another time. Every single one of us are sinners by nature. And then just in case you're like, well, that doesn't seem fair. And from the moment you were born, you made choices of sin because that's, you make choices out of that nature. So even if you were to try and say, well, I don't deserve that, you've already made willful decisions in your life. And so have I. That means that we do deserve God's admonition here. And God's admonition is this, sin's desire for you is not just to buddy up to you, but to consume you, to destroy you. It, it never has enough. It's like a, it's like a monster. If you, if you picture like the old eighties movies with monsters or like stranger things, right? That monster, that's what sin's like. It doesn't, it never is satiated. Sin has a way of not just wanting to get one thing, but its goal is if it can get one thing in Cain, it's anger, then it can get the second thing, which is murder. If, I, if, he could, if sin can make its way into the crack door of Cain's open heart, then he knows that he can create that which is much more grotesque, much more harmful. The other thing that we need to recognize here is notice how God describes sin as first occurring vertically before it actually works itself out horizontally. So the first sin that's happening here is this, this disruption between God's relationship with Cain because Cain has allowed sin, which is crouching at the door, to consume him. And so the first thing that gets disrupted is his relationship with God. There's this discussion. And God's telling Cain, if you don't mortify or rule over sin, it will rule over you. An analogy I heard once from a pastor is a hunter goes out into the the cold of winter in order to in order to kill a bear because he needs to to warm himself and the bear stops him in the way and says whoa 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 whoa! what are you doing he says well i'm cold i need to warm myself and the bear looks at him and says well i'm hungry maybe we can make a deal <laughs> and the pastor said well at the end they they both got 
what they said they wanted, but one didn't actually get what he wanted because one was enveloped in fur, (laughs) but inside the belly of the bear who was no longer hungry, right? And the pastor's point was this, that once you've entertained the voice, once you've entertained the conversation, once you've entertained this negotiation with sin, sin will consume you. One of my favorite uh, stories and storytellers of the 20th century was J.R.R. Tolkien, and he wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he has this character in The Lord of the Rings called Saruman. Saruman is this evil wizard who basically rules on one side of the, of the Middle Earth uh, across from the great evil Sauron. And this guy Saruman, apparently his power, which this doesn't seem like a really powerful thing until you really think about it, his power was in his voice. That this man, when Gandalf would talk to the hobbits or anyone who would come in contact with him, he would say, don't let him speak because once you've let him speak, he already controls you. And you think about that, you're like, when you're a kid, you think about the Avengers, you think that's not really a superpower. You're like, you want to fly or something, you know, do something powerful. What would speaking do? But Saruman had a way of immediately casting a spell and then he controlled with his voice. This is the serpent who once you've started to negotiate with him, he's already beaten you because you have failed to recognize that which he really wants, which is not just to get the thing he's negotiating about, but to get all of you. Sin is this way. Sin crouches at the, do- at the door. It doesn't, it doesn't find itself contented with an inch, but instead it will motivate and animate to destroy anyone and anything that it can. Now, you might be thinking that's a really intense view that you have there, Court, and I would say it is. It's also the one that the Bible pretty much lines out right at the start. And here's the thing, the Bible doesn't then get more lax on sin. It just starts to show you how it all unravels. So every single story, you ever read through the Old Testament and you're like, oh, well, there's a lot of really cool stories. But then you're like, I thought we were supposed to like Abraham. He doesn't seem like he's doing a great job in his marriage though. Anybody else? Like I know, especially you girls, you're women. You're probably like, I don't like this guy all that much. Jacob, I don't like how he treats Leah. Does anybody else? It's like poor Leah, right? And everybody's like, Jacob, but patriarch, he was renamed Israel. It's great. It's like, well, partially, he's kind of a squirrel. And that's euphemistic, right? You can go throughout all of it. David's like, King David, a man after God's own heart, except to Uriah. I mean, you might say, well, everybody's got their stuff. That's very, very small. That's That's a... Way to blunt the edge for this guy who was out fighting a war on the front lines for his king as the king was having his way with the one he loved. You might think that's a small thing. It's no small thing because the Bible just shows you how sin unravels human relationships over and over and over and over again. Now, of course, the next stanza is about the confrontation. And in verse 8, it starts to tell you about what what Cain does. Verse eight says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. So they're having a conversation. When they're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he killed him. So anger has now turned to murder, which Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is what's already there anyway. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? I love this is how God always interacts with humans. He always asks questions that he knows the answers to. And it's always because he wants you to come to these conclusions and admit. Now, now we're gonna get to this in a second. This is why confession is so important because God already knows and some of us will 
we'll kid ourselves into believing that since we're Christians, that God already knows our sins and he knows that we're sorry in our hearts and therefore there's no need for us to confess, which is just not true. Jesus knew all sorts of things and then he asked questions because when we confess with our mouth something to be true, there's a healing that can happen. This is what the book of James says. It says, confess your sins one to another and be healed. There's something that's important about actually acknowledging, I did this, I am wrong. God, forgive me. Now, so he says, where's your brother? Famous words. These famous words are going to be played out and redeemed in Christ only. And this is, this is uh, Cain's words. I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? There's so much to this. Number one, why do I have to keep an eye on him? Why should I have to, am I the one who's supposed to take care of him? Answer, yes. You are the one who's supposed to be your brother's keeper. You are the one who's supposed to look out for your neighbor. Jesus said, loving your neighbor is at the very heart of the law. So he's totally wrong here, but there's something else even deeper, even more sinful, which is, am I my brother's keeper? Aren't you supposed to be the one that's keeping an eye on him? You see this? Aren't you supposed to be the one who's all knowing? Aren't you supposed to be the one who knows where he is? Why are you asking me questions you should know? You could see this animosity he has towards God. Okay. Here's the Lord, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. Okay. I enjoy um, watching historical movies just because I'm intrigued by history, how things have unfolded. One of the things I really enjoy is watching, this may seem masochistic, but historical war movies. Uh, I really enjoy watching them. I like hearing about what's going on and the really tough decisions that leaders have to make in really crucial times. One, uh, a recent movie that came out with Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill was called The Darkest Hour. It's a really good movie. If you haven't watched it, I really enjoyed it. It's basically, it's a very narrow period of time in World War II where it's talking about Winston Churchill's decisions that he must make from the moment that he's called out of retirement to be the prime minister and pretty much right after the Battle of Dunkirk, which was a, a massive retreat that ended up being an amazing victory, a bold move, but they were doomed if they don't have success there. And at this time, the United States has not entered into the war. There's no mass, massive alliance, but Britain stands alone as an island against a massive force of tyranny and fascism and evil. And Churchill has not only this massive responsibility because they're calling on him, um, but to basically withstand that, but he's got, even from within his own ranks, there's a push for him to make amnesty with Hitler. There's a massive push to tell him, you need to, you need to make a peace deal. Hitler has promised that he'll leave our island alone if you just make peace with him. And if you don't know, if you've never read a biography of Churchill, or don't, he is a man completely uninterested with this type of jargon. <laughs> and also, specifically with Hitler, he's been warning the nation for years and years and years, and all of them called him a warmonger about it. He's been warning them over and over, this man is out of his mind. And so now they call him at the last minute because they recognize, oh, he was right, but then all of them are pressuring him, so just make a deal behind closed doors. And there's this specific scene where Churchill's pressed because he knows he's losing men uh, in uh, Dunkirk. He knows he's losing all of these strongholds that basically because uh, France had, had fallen, that all of his men are dying, and he's got this massive pressure to capitulate. And he's in the, one of his war rooms, which are underground, because they, honestly they had to be because of the bombs, and there's this moment where he's being pressured to negotiate. 
And finally he stands up, and it's one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. He stands up and says, he screams at them, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. It's one of my favorite lines from the movie is he recognizes you don't negotiate with that which wants to destroy you. You, you think that there will be peace. The Bible even speaks of this where the false prophets of Israel would say, peace, peace, but there was no peace. It was false peace. And it was because they wanted to lull themselves into sleep to believing that the enemies were for peace, but they weren't. And this is what sin convinces us of. John Owen was a man who, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. He was a Puritan. I would encourage you if you ever read John Owen, first of all, he's very difficult to read, very, very wise man. But be, be careful because he's got a, he's got a pretty significant uh, opinion when it comes to how we deal with sin. He's the one who is famous for, say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Listen to this quote from him about sin, though, which I think is important. It should be put up behind me. It says this, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or to entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Every rise of lust might, if it had its own course, come to the height of villainy. This is key. It's like the grave that is never satisfied. That's what he saw sin as. I think he's spot on here. Sin will masquerade itself as a small and insignificant compromise, but its goal is once it gets through the doors is to have as much of you as it can and not for good, but to consume you. Now, this is the antithesis of the spirit of God that comes outright from the very gates to tell you, I have every intention of controlling all of you for your flourishing. Jesus came to tell us that Satan and sin comes outright and says, I only want a little bit, but seeks to destroy you. And it comes, on the, it comes in the guise of an angel of light because it tells you, you can have this much pleasure and all I want is this much too. You end up getting neither of those. One way that I've always said this pastorally is sin always overpromises and underdelivers. <laughs> now, why do I think this is important and why do I, I find this really helpful? Well, sin will not only ruin your relationship with God, but sin ruins marriages. I've seen it. Sin ruins parental relationships. Sin ruins friendships. Sin can wreck your conscience, keep you depressed. I've seen this pastorally, and so I think this is why the Bible wants to deal with it so obviously. It's because if we think that the issues with our lives are always external and circumstantial, and it's because my boss is tough on me, and it's because my wife, you know, nags me and she doesn't love me anymore. It's because my husband's lazy and doesn't want to get mow the lawn anymore. And that's really why I'm mad. It's really why I'm angry. My kids frustrate me. They're little. And, and all of those things can be true, but they aren't at the root. And the Bible wants us to know this. Circumstantial things don't destroy your life. Sin does. Sin does. Sin is serious. It can't be reasoned with, can't be negotiated with. It must only be mortified. And also it's the one area of commonality that can unite you and me together when we agree on its devastating desires and its effects on ourselves and the ones that we are called to love. When we agree on that, it can really unify us. That's, what the Bi- that's why the Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
That comes on the heels of Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Jews and Gentiles, Paul is saying, we can all find commonality in that we are all, whether under the law or not under the law, sinners in need of mercy. So now, okay, here's the difficulty. The church is a community of saints. Now you might be saying, who are you talking about? Like, that ain't me. Well, that's your identity given to you from Christ, because of Christ, and on the merits of Christ. And I think it's one you need to really embrace. We're a community of saints that are forgiven by our Savior, but we are battling still against our sin. And that's common among all of us. So how difficult is it if we all know this is the devastating effects of sin that are always crouching at the door, according to what Scripture says. And you and I are all filled with these temptations, not year by year, not month by month, not week by week, moment by moment, sin's crouching at the door for you and me. How dangerous is that? And then here's the inevitable, we sin against each other. We sin against God and we sin against each other. How do we deal with that? Now you might say this is really easy court, that's why we have the gospel, and I agree, and we're gonna get there, but I don't think it's as easy as you think because just like Cain started with anger, which you apply the gospel there, and I think it's much easier. Murder's different, isn't it? Like, let's just play this out in your home group. It's like one guy in your home group is really struggling, but he doesn't tell anybody about it, and it's kind of festering, and then one day he pops off in home group and yells, whether it's at his children or his spouse or even you, the home group leader, pops off, yells, and, and is really mad, and you're like, whoa, what happened? Well, your home group leaders get together, and you're like, listen, man, we love you. What's wrong? He breaks down. He's like, I don't know, man. I'm kind of losing it. Here's all the things that are going on, and here's where I think I need to repent. And you pray together, and you're like, listen, man, you're forgiven. It's, it's all good. Like, bring your kids along, and you repent to your children, repent to your spouse, and, and there can be healing. But what happens if he doesn't say anything until one day he just decides he's going to end someone's life? You might say, that doesn't happen, Court. That's, that's way crazy. That's intense. Just, you know, a cursory 6 o'clock news run might convince you otherwise. Now, in the church, you might say, like, well, you know, that's not supposed to happen. And it's like, yeah, of course it's not supposed to happen. But what happens when it does? Is it as easy? Is it as clear cut? Do we say that the gospel covers this and therefore there's no consequences like legal action? For those of you who have had family members who have been really hurt, for those of you who have family members that have really been physically harmed by someone, you probably already know the answer to this. Of course not. Christianity doesn't mean there are no consequences to sin. But this is no small thing, right? This is no small battle to deal with. And so here's what I want to do. I want to walk through how should the church respond to sin in a way that honors Christ and honors one another. So here's what I'll say. Deep within the human psyche and within the human soul, there is simultaneously a hunger for justice and a desperation for grace. And these things, they're not things that you should be trying to quell in yourself, but instead you should recognize them both as equally merited because they are God's characteristics that he has impressed upon you because you are an image bearer of God. God has a hunger for justice in that which is right. And God knows our desperate need for grace. And he says to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's at the very core of who he is. Both of these desires come from God. And in Cain's story, what we see is that both of these desires in God actually manifest themselves in God's response. So what do we have? God punishes Cain and he brings the consequence for his sin. 
and they're grave and they are just, and he does it immediately. Listen to this, starting in verse eight. Actually, let's just kick it off in, in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now here it is, you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And you, when you work from the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So the first thing that God does is say, this is the consequences for your sin, Cain. And then Cain cries out and says, it's too heavy for me to bear. And what's God's response? Grace. He then says, far be it from me to allow horizontally this judgment to happen that Cain might be killed. And so he says this in verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So then he shows him mercy. Both of these in tandem. So what can we take from this? Well, the church can fall into two ditches on both sides of the road. And I just want to pastor you for a moment because I think that this is really helpful with parenting. It's helpful with leadership and it's helpful in your own life. The first side of the road would be on the left side. There is a ditch and it looks like this, that we extend grace and mercy to sin at the expense of justice and consequence. It looks like this, degrading the victims of sin, ignoring the damage done, minimizing the sin, and putting man in the place of Christ as atonement and dispenser of grace. Why is this so tempting? It's so tempting because we know Psalm 130 verse 3 says this, God, if you counted all of our sins and held us account, who could stand? The reason it's tempting is because if you know yourself and someone else sins, you know, I better extend grace. Even Jesus says, it's only those who forgive that are forgiven. So you're like, I got to do that. We recognize that the heart of the gospel is God's grace on sinners, and we want to communicate that. We want to dispense that, and rightly so. We also recognize that we have empathy because of our own sin, and we want to apply the golden rule. But the question is, what's missing? And I want you to think about the analogy that I used of someone who might be murdered. What's missing here? Well, what's missing is our reminder that at the core of the gospel is also God's justice being poured out on Christ on the cross that God was not unjust at the, at the cross. He didn't say your sins are forgiven and just snap his fingers and it was done. He actually said, no, there must be justice rendered and Christ bore our penalty for that sin, our consequence. It also misses God's desire that sin's consequences would lead us to repentance and lead us to change. You know this if you're a parent, if you only just say, it's not a big deal and I forgive you, but you, there's never any consequences for those actions, then there's rarely true repentance and there's rarely true, true change in your kids. Lastly, what's missing is that the holiness that God desires for his church is in effect neglected and righteousness and justice and all of its effects on the body are not realized. Jesus told us, be holy even as I am holy. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we know that the only way our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees is through the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. We know this. But we also recognize that Jesus then expected and included an expectation of fruit that would be born in keeping with repentance, that we would, like he told the woman caught in adultery, now go and sin no more, daughter, I forgive you. 
So what do we become? In our hopes to become grace dispensers, at times we can become enablers. Okay, so that's one ditch. Then there's the right side of the ditch. My wife and I always joke about this because my wife tends to be more justice. I think part of that's because she's more moral than most and has always been more moral than most. I have a harder time finding, you know, things to uh, call her out on. And it's much easier for me because they're all just right at the surface. It's like you could just kind of do a, Eh, there, and you'll probably find something that I could be uh, called into repentance for. My wife's a little bit more difficult in this way. But the right ditch is this, where we have justice and consequences at the expense of grace and mercy. And what does this look like? It degrades the sinner. It ignores the commonality of sinfulness of all of us. It minimizes God's grace, and it puts man in the place of Christ as judge and dispenser of judgment when we do this. Now, why is it so tempting? It's so tempting because Isaiah 61 says, I, the Lord, love justice. We know that this is who God is. One of the things that God tells his children in Micah in the prophets is that we should walk humbly and seek to do justice. We recognize that at the heart of the gospel is God's hatred for sin and his desire for us to be whole in Christ. We recognize the need for consequences and truth to drive us into the arms of Christ and repent us. But what is missing in this response? What's missing is God's grace poured out on the chiefest of sinners, which well, here's what the New Testament tells you, which includes all of us at some point or another. Paul considered himself the chiefest of all sinners. God's, it also misses God's desire to welcome the lowly and the stained into his household. And lastly, it misses that the church has to have a culture of mercy and grace because the effect of mercy and grace on the body is so massive. If we don't have it, that culture of judgment decays the church. It, it creates a rigidity in the church that cannot have life anymore. It's no longer teeming with life and forgiveness and all of the things that are so necessary for us to be whole, but it's teeming with judgment and cynicism and criticism and hatred for one another and not hatred for sin because those things get conflated. So you might be saying, okay, court, so then how do you do it? Well, first of all, maybe I should give you the face mic. I don't know, always. Sometimes it's very difficult on how to handle situations. I will say this, we seek to exercise both of God's characteristics, recognizing that we will do so imperfectly and we look to Christ for help and for hope. And there's no hope for us to nail this always interpersonally, but the key is recognizing we're not the judge, but we're ultimately not the grace dispenser either, at least not the ultimate grace dispenser, that Christ is that. He is on his judgment seat simultaneously handing out judgments and mercy, and this is what Christ's responsibility is. But I want to end with this, because when we were going to start our, our sermon series, we were actually going to be in the, the Mount of Transfiguration story, and I thought, well, these actually in a very odd way, they coincide. I want to read from John chapter 1, if you want to turn there. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. This is John's words, and at the very beginning of his gospel, he says this. After John has already said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he then, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh, this is Christ, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father. Listen to this, full of grace and truth. 
Now, he's not going to stop here. He's going to really press this analogy. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, he, come, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, and Jesus, he has made him known. So this is the rub. How do we deal with the guilt that we all fall underneath at one point in our lives or another? As long as relationships have existed, sin has tainted them. That was really the point of this morning's sermon, starting with Cain and Abel. Marriages will deal with this topic. Mothers and fathers will deal with this topic. Leaders will deal with this topic. Friends have to deal with this topic. And the question is, how do we maintain that there are behaviors that cause real harm and that dishonor God and dishonor people while simultaneously recognizing that even as these things are true, that that proclivity that is in others also remains in ourselves? How do we grapple with that? Well, the first thing that we do is in the Bible, we, we acknowledge the law. That's what John says here. God brought the law through Moses. What does the law do? The law gives us a standard of right and wrong that is above and beyond us. It's not one that we've created. It's one that we've received. It's not one that we have contrived. It's one that God has condescended to give us as a gift. The law, standards of morality, right and wrong. And then what? The second thing we do, at least in the Old Testament, was to create a means of restitution. How do we make it right? That was what the Old Testament did. But until 2,000 years ago, we didn't have anything but that, and it was an imperfect system. But 2,000 years, 2000 years ago, the fullness of God's character was revealed to us in a person, Jesus Christ. And when we saw Jesus for the first time, what we saw was the fullness of God's perfection, holiness, wholeness. It's called his truth. And simultaneously, we saw the fullness of God's mercy and forgiveness. It's called his grace. He reveals, Jesus reveals to us everything that we aren't, and yet it causes us to want to be near to him. Have you ever thought about this? When you see Jesus, you see his holiness, and what should make you terrified and want to shove your head into the sand like the Israelites at Sinai makes you want to be with him, makes you want to be near him. How can Christ do this? Well, at the cross, we see the justice of God and the grace of God meet. Some theologians have called it when God's justice and God's grace kiss. It's where Christ's arms are pulled apart on the cross and he's bearing the just penalty for sin. And all the while with his last breaths, he's crying out for forgiveness of the very ones who did this to him. It's an incredible vision of Christ. And here's what I want to say. Beauty has a way of changing you. And that's always been at the heart of what Christians believe. My son, he, he wants to be a spaceman. It's his thing that he's been very passionate about. He asks me if he can ride on the moon or if he can go sit on the sun. And I'm very practical. I'm like, nope, you can't do those things. Like you need, you'll burn up. You know, I'm just really harsh with him. Like the sun will just burn you up, son, you know, and he laughs about it. But he, he looks up at the sky and I can tell his imagination just turns so much so that it changes our conversations while we're talking about something that's important before school like I want you to be a good boy from the heart and listen to your teachers and he says dad can I ride the moon I'm like you're off base buddy like we're we've lost we've lost where we need to be but there's something to that and that is since 
you were, ch- you were a child, doing something as simple as looking up into the sky has a way of changing your perspective and changing you at the core of who you are. It challenges things in you at a very core level. And Christians have always believed this. Some theologians have gone further than, it, than any others, Jonathan Edwards being one of those. And I wanted to read a quote from him about how he views seeing Jesus, the fullness of grace and truth, and how that changes us. Listen to this. How good is God that he has created man for this very end? to make him happy in the enjoyment of himself, the Almighty, who was already happy from the days of eternity in himself, that he might make them blessed in what? In the beholding of his excellency and might in this way glorify himself. This may seem super theoretical, but I think it is the answer. The only way that the church deals with sin in a way that is both wise and just and gracious is to look to Jesus intently and behold his excellency until it changes us. It's the only way that we read the scriptures and we see how does Jesus handle people? Have any of you ever thought the absolute wisdom with which he handles people? The, the ability that he had to know when to extend the hand of grace holy and I mean that W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely without regard to seemingly quoting the law and the times where he seems to almost be only operating on the Old Testament law, like when he deals with the Pharisees. It just seems baffling to me. When Jesus is asked to explain salvation, he'll simultaneously say to the rich young ruler that you must give everything that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And then to Nicodemus, tell him, and you must be born again. And somehow those answers are entirely right and true and not contradictory. Jesus's wisdom, his beauty, his perfection changes us. It gives us that which we don't have, which is the ability to deal with sin. And also it's because he's already dealt with sin that it does this for us. One way to think of this would be this. We look to Christ for our example. We look to Christ for our victory. We look to Christ for our sense of justice. We look to Christ for our sense of grace. We look to Christ in every way and we behold his glory. The Bible calls it, Paul knew this. Paul said, glory as of the only son of God, the exact imprint and radiance of God's nature. And when we behold him, we're changed. Some theologians have said it like this, you become what you behold, what your vision is intent on being set on. It's why Paul says, Set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Those are together. When we set our minds and our eyes to Christ, we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? Because beauty changes you. And so I want to end with this. And these are, last week we talked about what are the fundamentals of Christianity? How do we return to them? And I think that this topic this morning is very fundamental to what it means to be Christian. And I want to leave you with this so that you would leave your burdens of sin at the cross of Christ this morning and gaze at the beauty and the excellency of Jesus. That you might bring all of the ought that you have against your brother or your sister and lay that at the cross and then gaze at the beauty and the excellencies of Jesus. Here's a few things. How do we do this? We hate sin and we battle it. That's fundamental to Christianity. We confront sin in ourselves and in one another with the truth. We confess sin to God and to each other. 
We repent of sin to God and to each other. We humbly receive the consequences of sin and we mourn them. We gratefully receive God's mercy and grace and we rejoice in it. As far as we are called and as far as we are able, we comfort one another in grace and in love. As far as we are called and as far as we are able, we seek to restore one another in grace and in love. And when it gets hazy and we don't know what to do, we look to Jesus all over again for guidance. If you remember this morning, you know this rings true for us and many things we're wrestling with even in our own church. But no matter where we stand, this is worthy of our wrestling because here's the truth. Sin is a topic that we must grapple with because it's always crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But I want to close with saying this, Christ's desire is for you in the strongest of ways and for your flourishing. And it is even stronger than sin. It's why Paul wrote the end of Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the desire of Christ manifested in the love of Christ. He loves you and his desire outweighs that of sins. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Oh, Father, we confess to you as your children that we are not only imperfect, but sin is always crouching at the door. And at times we crack the door open for sin and we need your forgiveness. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Father, there are also those under the sound of my voice who have been victims of sin. And Lord, I long that we would be a church that ministers to them, that cares for them, that meets them in their weeping, that wraps a loving arm around them to hug them in their hurt, and that, Lord, we would also be willing to acknowledge the consequences of sin to those who need to hear it. But that ultimately and always, God, we would return back to the foot of the cross. Help us to go back there and look up at you as you receive an unjust and unjust punishment for sins that were not your own. And you did so gladly so that you might cry out, forgive the ones who don't know what they're doing. God, we confess to you that often we are those who don't even know what it is we find ourselves wrapped up in. And we thank you that you love us enough to come and grab us in the middle of our sin. That you love us enough to pull us out of the miry clay when we're looking around wondering how in the world we got there. That like a lamb caught in the brambles, you, the good shepherd, you find us and you untangle us from sin. And so now, God, I ask you, would you do that for us this morning, that we might leave out of here light and full of joy. Do that now, my God, even in our partaking of communion, that we would not drink judgment, but we drink life. Because in the communion act, we would recognize that we are in union with you, Jesus, forgiven and healed. It's in your precious name we pray.